Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. KQED in San Francisco, I'm Marisa Lagos in for Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, as president, Trump had lawful access to the most sensitive classified documents and national defense information, begins the 49-page federal indictment of former President Donald Trump released Friday. It charges Trump with 37 felony charges related to his handling of classified documents. He's due in court to address those charges today. We'll discuss the latest news, its national security implications, and what this means for Trump's presidential campaign and the rest of the Republican field. That's next after this news. This is Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos, and for Amina Kim. Former President Trump is accused of storing boxes containing classified documents in a bathroom and shower, in his bedroom, his office, a ballroom, and a storage room at Mar-a-Lago. That's according to the Justice Department's federal indictment of Trump released Friday, which charges the former president with 37 felony counts, including 31 counts of willful retention of national defense information under the Espionage Act. Here's the special counsel investigating this case, Jack Smith, on Friday. We have one set of laws in this country, and they apply to everyone. With the former president due in court today, we'll make sense of the charges, discuss their national security implications, and analyze what they could mean for the upcoming presidential election. Joining me first to do so is Shan Wu, criminal defense attorney and CNN legal analyst and a former federal prosecutor. Thanks for being with us, Shan. Oh, sure. Happy to be here. Also here is Sarah D. Wire. She's Justice Department and national security reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Hey, Sarah. Hey, how you doing? I'm well. Well, thank you for from both of you. I know you've both been following this case quickly. And Shan, I'd like to start with you and this hearing, which is just happening in a couple hours as we are talking. What do you think is going to happen today? Well, usually the arraignments are pretty straightforward, rather ministerial. So it could be very quick. Uh, oftentimes, there could be a reading of the indictment, but most defense counsel will waive the reading of the indictment and just have the client, in this case Trump, enter his plea, which will 100% be a not guilty plea. That's standard at this uh, part of the process. Uh, I highly uh, would be shocked if they sought anything except release on personal recognizance in this instance, and then they'll be setting a future status date. Uh, and then past that, I mean, it's possible that we might see 
some early motions uh, by the Trump defense team, but that's not the norm at the arraignment. And of course, the team itself is a little bit in disarray at this point. Yeah. So uh, before I go to Sarah, I mean, reading the indictment, like that would be all 49 pages if they allowed that to go forward or required that to. Right, exactly. I mean, and, and one of the reasons, not only does it take a while to read an indictment, <laughs> but generally the defense counsel aren't really happy about the idea of putting out all these charges publicly to have everybody hear it one more time. That's why they would like to just waive the reading and say, you know, he asserts his rights and he's pleading not guilty. Right. Yeah. I mean, an indictment, to be fair, is a one sided document. So let's dive into it. Sarah, what do you see as the most damaging charges in this nearly 50 page indictment? I mean, it's, it's honestly the, the 31 charges under the Espionage Act, which obviously is not accusing him of being a spy or selling secrets to a foreign government, but it's, it's a willful retention of government intelligence uh, that what he's being charged under. And, you know, some of the details that came along with that through the indictment were just kind of jaw-dropping, even to those of us who have followed this so closely for over a year now. I mean... There's photos of boxes stacked in bathrooms at one point on a kind of stage in a ballroom. Um, how much is that visual evidence it's kind of striking, Sarah? Like, were you did you expect that having followed this case for as long as you have? I think, you know, there was that expectation that there might be some some visual evidence because of what we saw after the FBI search back in last August, where they posted a photo of the documents arrayed out on the floor. But you know, nothing sticks with you quite like seeing the boxes next to a toilet under a chandelier or on a, uh, you know, in a ballroom that you know has been used for public events over and over. Um, I think you're really going to see the special counsel lean into that aspect of this, that these documents, they weren't just kept in a storage room. They weren't kept behind lock and key. They were you know, out where anyone could access them for a big chunk of time. Yeah. I mean, Shan, talk about that kind of aspect of this. The, the Espionage Act is kind of the core of most of these charges, 31 counts. What is that? And how could somebody, you know, a former president who did have access when he was serving to all kinds of classified information, like, what does it mean for someone like him to violate it? Well, I think it's quite unprecedented uh, to have him be the one charged. After all, he is the commander in chief in charge of the national defense. And the heart of this case is about him improperly retaining documents so important to national defense. Now, it's important to note this is not a dissemination case. He's not being charged with giving it to people or even putting it on the Internet. Um, but it's really unprecedented to have the commander in chief actually charged with this type uh, of an offense. And the critical point for his defense there is a lot of talk about classification or not classification, but that's not what the charge depends on. It's just whether they're nationals, national defense related. We'll talk about that because it seems like this is one of those cases where that old, uh, you know, trope, it's the cover up, not the crime seems to be what what prosecutors are alleging is largely about Trump's actions following their request, the government's request to get a lot of these documents back. Is that right, Shan? Yeah, that's very intrinsically uh, tied up here. And the fact that he had the opportunity to return it. Uh, the fact that it seems like he was misleading the requests, wasn't complying, talking with his attorney about how to perhaps 
cover things up. That's really a critical part of the case, not just because that constitutes obstruction, but for the jury appeal aspect of it, it raises the issue of why would you be trying to cover it up unless there's something that is really bad for you to cover up. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, Sarah, we learned a lot on Friday with the unsealing of this indictment about what the government is alleging in terms of what what is in these documents. Obviously not details of the documents since they're classified and top secret. But what can you tell us about the documents that Trump's accused of retaining? So what we learned from the indictment is that among the top secret and other classified records that the FBI uh, you know, recovered during their search of Mar-a-Lago in August were details on foreign nations' nuclear capabilities, information regarding defense and weapon capabilities of both the U.S. and our allies, uh, U.S. nuclear programs, potential vulnerabilities of the U.S. and its allies to military attack, and you know, U.S. plans for uh, retaliation in response to an attack. And I mean, you cover national security like for just were you surprised at the kind of sensitivity of sensitivity of these documents? Like, what are you hearing from the intelligence community about how, you know, how big of a risk this could be, um, given, as, as Shan noted, how sort of unsecure uh, Mar-a-Lago seems? I've been hearing a lot of jaws hit the floor be honest. You know, the uh, people I talked to with the national security, this was their worst fear, was that some of these documents, the things that were for the president's eyes only, or for only the president and our top allies' eyes, uh, would be what he had a copy of. Um, you know, we're not talking about, you know, little routine things that might have been picked up by a random, you know, army sergeant and passed along. Neither are among some of the country's top secrets. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get into that a little later. Um, Shan, before we do, though, just talking a little bit more about today's uh, hearing and, and the case itself. Why is this case being brought in Florida? We know a lot of the kind of investigatory stuff was being done in D.C. I think there was a grand jury called there originally, um, but ultimately prosecutors decided it was better uh, to bring these charges down in Florida. Yeah, that was quite a surprise to me and many other people, although it's possible that the Florida grand jury had been going on for much you know, longer than we knew about since it's secret. It seems like they were concerned with a doctrine called venue, which is where you bring the case. They may have been worried that bringing it in D.C. would allow Trump to challenge if that was the right venue, and two things could happen. That could result in a long delay as they litigate that. And there is a pending Supreme Court case indicating that if you bring it in the wrong venue, you might not be able to correct that and bring it in the right venue. That's been written about um, by some other commentators. So it looks like that's what went into the calculation. It's by no means a slam dunk that they could not have brought it in DC. For example, the um, section 1512 states that venue would be proper wherever the investigation or proceeding was that was being interfered with. That's sort of the witness tampering aspect of it. So they certainly would have had a very strong argument that's proper in D.C., but I think they're hoping to minimize as much as possible any of the issues that might arise because there'll be lots of them. 
Yeah, there's there's probably going to be some motions filed to dismiss this case and <laughs> and otherwise slow it down because of course I think politically and we're going to talk about that in a bit uh, it is in Trump's interest to kind of slow walk this but Sarah um, Eileen Cannon is the judge in this case that might ring a bell to folks who have been following a lot of the twists and turns of this investigation what do we know about her and whether she might stay on this case. Uh, you know, she was a, a Trump appointee and uh, she was the judge who was uh, handed Trump's complaints back last fall that the FBI search was unwarranted and took documents that it should not have. And, you know, no legal expert I spoke to thought that she was going to rule in Trump's favor and approve having a, what's called a special master, a outside expert go through and review the documents to see whether they were properly taken or not. No one was expecting that to actually happen. It doesn't happen in this sort of search. And uh, she approved it. Uh, her approving it delayed the case by weeks and weeks. As the Justice Department made claim after claim in court that it was, you know, hurting national security to have this outside observer looking at the documents. Um, her decision was overturned by the 11th Circuit in a pretty, honestly, snarky smackdown. Yeah. Um, it was not, it was probably one of the more honest <laughs> smackdowns I've ever seen of a judge. And the, uh, so, you know, the judicial code refers to the appearance of impropriety when it comes to whether to recuse or not, and not just the you know the facial value of impropriety. And so there was some talk that she might recuse. We have no indication that that's going to happen. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on that. We are talking about the federal indictment of former President Donald Trump. His arraignment is later today. And we're talking about the criminal case's implications for national security and the election. Here with us is Shan Wu, a former federal prosecutor and defense attorney, and Sarah Weyer, Justice Department and National Security and Government Accountability Reporter for the Los Angeles Times. We want to hear from you. Does Trump's indictment on federal charges alter your opinion of him? What questions do you have for our panel? How do you think this indictment might impact the Republican presidential primary and 2024 election? You can email us, forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Or give us a call at 866-733-6786. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. And today for Mina Kim, we are talking about the federal indictment of former President Donald Trump. Quite an unprecedented uh, move. And we have a cut here I want to play. Uh, the former president has vowed to fight these charges. Here's a video he posted on his social media site, Truth Social. But it's called election interference. They're trying to destroy your reputation so they can win an election. And I think uh, that uh, prosecutors would vehemently disagree with that characterization. Uh, here with me right now is Shan Wu. He's a former federal prosecutor and defense attorney, and Sarah Wire, who covers the Justice Department, national security, and government accountability for the LA Times. Um, and we have a question. I mean, as we mentioned at the top, this is a 49-page indictment. It's got a lot of details. That is not always the case in these indictment, right, Shan? So one listener wants to know. Specifically, how are prosecutors alleging that the former president refused to return the documents? Can you can you give us some details on that? Sure. Yeah, uh, it's basically uh, two parts here, which is first uh, after uh, documented back and forth uh, between the federal government and Trump's team with regard to the documents. There is also a grand jury subpoena ultimately issued requesting uh, the return of documents. And so that's how they're showing that he didn't comply with it. The second part of the noncompliance is that after the Justice Department became concerned that some of these really sensitive national defense documents might still be not back in the government's possession, that's when they went to a judge and asked for a search warrant, the judge had to listen to their representations, the original back and forth, what the evidence was, including some surveillance at that point. And the judge decided there was probable cause to issue the search warrant. They executed the warrant and in fact did indeed find many, many documents that had not been returned. So that's really the crux of how they make that aspect of the case. Yeah. And I mean, Sarah, there's some pretty, as I said, detailed evidence in here, audio recordings, photographic evidence, uh, some text messages between uh, Trump's valet, who was also charged along with him. Um what did the indictment reveal about why Trump might have kept these documents, what he was doing with them? Well, and you've honed in on the singular question that is unanswered in the indictment. <laughs> um, I mean, really, the uh, that's the biggest lingering question for, we all have right now is why. Uh, there are some inklings and indications in the indictment that you know his his staff refers to them as the beautiful mind papers or the two incidents that uh, the DOJ talk about. He showed the documents to someone who without uh, a security clearance were both in times where he was trying to defend himself and say, what, I'm right and you're wrong. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it doesn't seem like there's any allegations, though, we should say of him trying to sell these or give them to foreign governments. It It seems more like what prosecutors are getting at is just that he wanted to kind of show them off. <laughs> right, Sarah? I mean, which does track with a lot of what we know about kind of the former president's personality and how he operated in the White House. 
Correct. Um, you know, the first case in uh, New Jersey that we know about, he was trying to disprove a claim that was going to be written in a book uh, that was being uh, you know, partially written by his former chief of staff. And in the other, he was trying to prove that he was right about a foreign government invading another uh, government. And he pulled out a classified map to show someone who signed you know, with his super PAC. Um, you know, it is really important to note, though, that we, this indictment does not tell the public everything that DOJ knows. Yeah, absolutely. This is only the evidence that they thought was necessary to present to a grand jury in order to move forward. Much more will likely to come out during trial itself. Shan, one listener wants to know kind of what could happen if Trump is convicted here. Uh, he, he or she writes, I understand up to 20 year sentences can be associated with these crimes and there's 37 charges. But realistically, if he's convicted, what might he be sentenced to and how long could he delay? I suspect with an army of lawyers, he could delay the trial and sentencing until he dies of old age. Leaving aside the issue of pardons, which we can get into as well. I mean, what uh, what would a case like this look like typically and how could it be different because, you know, he's running for president and is a former president? Yeah, so let me split that into two parts on the sentencing part um the, the listeners right the, the statutory maxes which could easily total you know 100 years or something aren't really what's controlling what's controlling is the federal sentencing guidelines which is basically this formula that you plug in which factors in things like uh the criminal history the offense levels assigned to the offense so obviously in this case he has no prior criminal history although i suppose that might change if the new york case convicts him before this one ever gets to trial and when you factor all that in the fact that he's been a public servant um i'm not thinking that this would result in a very lengthy jail sentence if he was convicted um i think there's sufficient gravity to the offenses there's a sufficient number of them um, that some kind of jail time seems like it would be likely to be imposed, but it's nothing, nothing realistically near these large numbers that you hear about because of what the laws say the max could be. Um, I think the other issue is in terms of the timing to the listener's question. Yeah, I think it is very, very difficult for them to get this uh, to trial before they're in the kind of red zone of the primaries and the election season. And if that's the case, it could be very problematic for the prosecution. Obviously, if we're to win re-election, everything's out the window. But just in terms of getting to that spot, the judge may be sympathetic to things like he has to campaign, he has conflicting types of places he has to be. Um, I think delay is going to be a very big problem in this case. Yeah. And speaking of the judge, we have a, a listener named Lisa who wants to underscore the point uh, we just made before the break, which is that she writes, the story that must be discussed is that this case will be overseen by the same judge, Eileen Cannon, who was rebuked by an appeals court for favoring Trump in a previous hearing. There's no way that this will be a fair trial, starting with the fact that she can prolong the case far beyond the upcoming election. Shan, I mean, Sarah mentioned that there's not really any requirement that this judge, you know, step back from this case. Um, Obviously, being rebuked by an appeals court in itself doesn't disqualify you. But do you think there will be any pressure within the legal community or any other considerations that somebody like Judge Cannon would make when when looking at this case? Uh, you know, I don't think so. I mean, not based on her previous uh, actions. 
ab- absolutely right what Sarah said about the 11th Circuit really kind of <clears throat> slapping her down on the legal reasoning there. But I don't really think that's going to deter her here in terms of managing um, the case. And I think it is hard to get her removed because it really needs to demonstrate some type of bias. And while she was legally completely out in left field, it's not that easy to connect that uh, nexus wise to the actual bias. Yeah. Um, I want to turn in a minute to the politics of all this, but before we do real quickly, um, Sarah Wire, Los Angeles Times, as I said, you cover the intelligence community, um, national security. What has been like, is there any fallout we're seeing more broadly? I mean, you said Jaws hit the floor at the details of this. There was also reporting, you know, during the Trump administration that U.S. allies were reluctant to share intelligence. Do we know anything about whether this specific case is impacting, you know, the the intelligence gathering kind of process of the United States and its national and international standing? Yeah, that's something we're going to know more about as time goes on be honest. It's too short of a a time span at this point. Um, You know, the allies who we know were affected have been, you know, kind of putting on a happy face. And, you know, Politico had a story this week with several people saying, oh, we, you know, we learned during the Trump administration to expect anything. And uh, so, you know, nothing shocks us anymore. But, now that it changes relationships mm-hmm. when this kind of information is, is potentially leaked or you know just even on a personal level if you share a secret with someone else and they possibly share it with someone else that's you know that changes the relationship and so um in the grand scheme of things it, it might I, I can't say for sure one way or the other but i think we're going to know more in time Absolutely. We're talking about the federal indictment of former President Donald Trump. His arraignment is later today. We're also discussing the implications for national security and politics. I've been talking with Shan Wu, former federal prosecutor and defense attorney, Sarah Wire of the L.A. Times. I want to introduce now Mike Madrid, co-founder of the Lincoln Project. They are a group of Republicans seeking to prevent the reelection of President Donald Trump. He's a longtime GOP strategist. Hey, Mike. Great to be with you. All right. So I want to play for you first uh, what we heard uh, from Speaker Kevin McCarthy right after this indictment came down last week. This is going to disrupt this nation because it goes to the core of equal justice for all, which is not being seen today. And we are not going to stand for it. So not a lot of uh, daylight between prominent Republicans and the former president. Uh, Mike, I assume you're not very surprised by this. Now, unfortunately, very disappointed. Again, Kevin and I have been, you know, colleagues since we were in Young Republicans together 30 years ago. And his enormous change uh, since the rise of the Trump era really mirrors a lot of what we've seen in the Republican Party. And he's become the perfect vessel to kind of communicate where Republican voters are at on this. Um, I, 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 I don't doubt his sincerity. I think he genuinely believes at this point, that there's a two-tiered system of justice. The unfortunate part is, while there is one, it, it's not about Trump and everybody else. It's it's much deeper than that. What do you mean? Like, uh, I mean, obviously, one of the sort of political defenses we're hearing out there, and I believe potentially a legal defense, might be this um, comparison to you know Hillary Clinton and the email server. Um, I, I, how sort of potent do you think that is from a political perspective? Well, I, look, this whole this whole dynamic is just reinforcing 
uh, the battle lines that really define the the landscape of American political theater at this point in time. I mean, this is not not only not changing anybody's minds. What it's doing is it's consolidating the Republican base behind Donald Trump. Ron DeSantis, who I think is kind of this sort of, you know, Pyrrhic uh, vision of what could be if 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 the Republicans could get past Donald Trump. Um, it really has never been able to get higher than low twenties in his support range. Trump's Trump's surging, Trump's consolidating, and it's because the Republican Party really is much less a party than it is a social movement that's defined by what it what it is against. And these attacks on Donald Trump play to his advantage. They embolden the base, and they create, I think, a really unhealthy and, and frankly a dangerous dynamic in the body politic. And I think we're probably going to see some of that. Uh, playing out over the course of the next 18 months. Yeah. Uh, Sarah Weyer, I mean, on the one hand, you have GOP uh, defenders of Trump saying, you know, that that uh, there were classified documents found in Joe Biden's garage, and they're not bringing this up that much, but apparently Mike Pence had some too. Um, both men apparently just gave those back when they were asked. Um Another listener, though, kind of asked about the other side of this, which is throughout my working life, I had four different security clearances. Each time you were supposed to read a page of what would happen if you took or talked about what you saw. If Trump were a 23 year old kid in our armed forces, he would be in jail for a very long time. I think he should be in jail for this stunt of his. Um, what what do you make of this? Like, it seems like there's a lot of, I guess, what about happening, but it, it is true that these are very serious charges and we haven't seen anything like them before. You know, the, the what about has a little bit of, of truth to it because we know that at least in, you know, Reagan, every president who has left the White House has taken things with them that they shouldn't have. But sometimes that's, you know, China or, you know, daily briefings. It's not necessarily at this level. And what really sets this apart from um, a lot of the examples that are being mentioned by Republicans right now, you know, Biden, Pence, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, back when he was president, is that Trump refuses to give these back. And whereas, you know, Biden and Pence both came forward to the FBI when they found these documents and made sure that, you know, they handed them over immediately and pretty much said, you know, here's my home, go search it. Um, that's where this really stands apart. And, you know, there's there's also a lot of truth to that idea of, you know, a 23-year-old kid would be already in prison at this point. Um, there's been a lot of leeway that was given to former President Trump because of his position. You know, he had months of uh, negotiating with the National Archives about even turning over boxes that they knew they hadn't received under the Presidential Records Act. And then it was only when they found classified documents that they went to the FBI, who again gave him four or five months to hand them back over before they pursued a subpoena. It was only when the they had evidence that the Samina hadn't been fully complied with. Then they sought a search warrant. I mean, every kind of grace period that could have been granted in this situation to a human being based on respect for the office appears to have been. Mm -hmm. And it seems like they really went out of their way to to make sure that he had every opportunity to give them back. And he didn't. He didn't. I'm, At least so we know. Yeah, <laughs> as the indictment lays out. I'm going to bring in a caller, Peter from San Francisco. Go ahead. Yes, hi. Uh, 
I think you're touching on some of the things I wanted to say, but the main thing I heard talk about, well, did he, what did he do with those documents? Did he profit in any way? Did he sell them or something? Well, first of all, uh, that's not what this, uh, what these indictments are about, what he did with those. And we, who knows, there may yet turn up things that he did. Who knows, maybe he sold them to somebody who gave him a chunk of money. But regardless of that, he's getting a big boost to his reputation. His reputation as a fighter, he's, he's created a, a battle and is profiting and benefiting even when it's described that he's showing stuff off to the people in his club. He's burnishing his reputation as a fighter who isn't going to take it lying down from, you know, the, uh, the what do you call it, the state, yeah, the, the deep state. Uh, and, and that is clearly something that he's benefiting from and intends to benefit from. And the more he fights on every point, the more he burnishes that reputation and advances his own purposes. All right. Thanks, Peter. I mean, Mike Richard, it's true. This We have seen again and again legal challenges for Trump spell spikes in the polls. I, I, I don't know that that's a good reason not to charge a case, though. No, it's absolutely not. I mean, it, 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 all the more reason to do this. There's a lot of criticism, especially from Republicans saying, you know, only in third world countries, the banana republics, do we see this type of political, you know, vendetta happening. And I think the obvious rejoinder to that is that only in banana republics do you see justice not being pursued or carried out on politicians. Um, and again, look, he, he's innocent until proven guilty, but there's overwhelming evidence that something very nefarious happened here. If we do not pursue this, regardless of the political wins, we jeopardize the underpinnings of democracy as much as he's trying to, you know, wreck the undercarriages of, of our institutions. So so we've got to pursue this relentlessly. Justice must be pursued. It must be done. And whether he's found innocent or guilty, we have to at least run the process if we're going to continue uh, really on with this this grand American experiment. It's just, it's that foundational. That is Mike Madrid, co-founder of the Lincoln Project and a GOP political strategist. Uh, Keegan writes, kind of backing up that point, Mike, having worked for the government in the nuclear world, I have to say how absolutely terrifying Trump's retention of these documents is. It doesn't matter that he wasn't trying to sell them. We have no clue who could have seen them or where that information is now. We won't see the effects of their compromise for years to come. Aren't nuclear secrets classified by Congress and the executive branch doesn't have the power to declassify them unless specifically invoking the Atomic Energy Act. We can get to that. After the break, we are talking about the federal indictment of former President Trump, his arraignments today, and we're discussing the criminal case's implications for national security and next year's election. Here with me, Shannon Wu, former federal Shan Wu, excuse me, former federal prosecutor and defense attorney, Sarah Weyer, Justice Department, national security and government accountability reporter at the LA Times, and Mike Madrid, co-founder of the Lincoln Project. Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Send us questions, forum at kqed.org, or hit us up on social media at KQED Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos in Fermina Kim. We're talking about the federal indictment of former President Donald Trump and the fallout legally and politically. Um, we have Shan Wu here with us, a former federal prosecutor and defense attorney. He's only here with us for another 10 minutes. So I do have a couple questions uh, from our audience. Um, starting with the last one, Shan Does the executive branch, even if Trump was still president, (laughs) uh, have the power to declassify all these documents? Um, Keegan was asking if they would have to specifically invoke the Atomic Energy Act. Yeah, I think uh, you can answer that question from a very sort of structural constitutional viewpoint, which is not actually that helpful. So yeah, theoretically, (laughs) it's the executive branch that came up with the classification. The intelligence community is part of the executive branch. Trump at that time would have been head of the executive branch. So theoretically, while he was president, that could have been happening. However, at a practical level, Presidents do not just willy-nilly decide, oh, I just want to declassify this information because my personal opinion is it should be declassified. There is a reason there's an intelligence community. There's a reason there's that apparatus. And there's a reason why it's compartmentalized. I mean, one of my favorite anecdotes on former President Jimmy Carter is he tells a story where after he became president, he wanted to see all the UFO files. (laughs) And he was told, (laughs) you know, need to know basis, sir, because it's a compartmentalized system no one person gets to see everything in order to keep it secure. So from a practical standpoint, this concept, oh, he's the commander in chief, he can do anything he wants. That just is not how it works. And for good reason, it would be unsafe. Yeah. Um, kind of combining a question from our audience about uh, from a, a listener named Curtis wants to know, if he's found guilty, could the federal government imprison a former president? Also, I think a lot of questions over whether being under indictment or even um, convicted of these crimes would disqualify him from running or becoming president. Uh, there's really nothing in the Constitution about all of this, right, Shan? That's correct. Yeah, there's nothing that would prevent him from running even while he was incarcerated. Uh, maybe that's <laughs> something needs to be changed. But you're right. There's nothing in the Constitution that speaks to that. There's been some talk about the logistics, you know, were he sent to jail? Is that even possible for a former president with Secret Service detail? I don't really think that's that difficult of a question. I I think if he's actually found guilty, I think a judge could sentence him to jail and they would figure out the logistics. And another listener wants to know, if he became president, could he pardon himself? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I would say theoretically, yes. Okay. <laughs> Again, from a constitutional <laughs> standpoint, he, he has that pardon power. Um, obviously, this has never been tested before. So uh, it'd be interesting to even see how it would be teed up in terms of how it gets tested. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one other quick question. Jesse in Los Altos. Jesse, go ahead. Hey, I was wondering... Um, um, what do, do we know what he's likely to have to pay in bail at the present time? Thank you for the question. Uh, Shan Wu, any thoughts on bail? 
Yeah, uh, under the federal system, normally they really are looking at the question of there's a presumption against keeping people incarcerated. They look for what conditions can ensure two things. One, that they'll return to court. Uh, that's usually this notion of bail if you're going to lose money if you don't return to court. And two, uh, whether there's any danger to the community. So arguably here, there's no physical danger to the community, so that's a non-issue. Um, the return to court part here, his attorneys are certainly going to point out that he's such a well-known figure. It's not like he could just become a fugitive very easily. So most likely, I think there's not going to be bail. Most likely what you're going to have here is simply a personal recognizance. Personal recognizance um, will be the condition. He's just released on who he is and his word to come back. Right. I mean, we saw this in the New York case as well. They're like, we don't really need a mugshot. We, we know. We know what you look like. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> um, Sarah Wire of the L.A. Times. Uh, talk a little bit more about the potential national security implications here. Like, is this something that could be harmful not just to the U.S., but to our allies abroad? I mean, in theory, yes. The, you know, thousands of people accessed Mar-a-Lago during this time span, uh, including we know there were at least two you know, Chinese spies who attempted to access Mar-a-Lago during this time. Um, so, you know, we don't. I don't want to, to scare people and say that we don't know what information might have gone out there, but we, we don't. Yeah. You know, we just don't have a clear picture because it hasn't been provided yet. Um, you know, we don't know if there were other documents that he might have shared that weren't in this indictment. Um, hopefully we're going to learn a lot more in, in the coming weeks and months. Absolutely. All right. I want to, um, you know what? I Shan Wu, I'm going to let you go. I know you have uh, other things to do. Uh, former federal prosecutor and defense attorney, thank you so much for all of your legal insights today. We really appreciate you. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to do it. All right. We're still here with Sarah Wire of the LA Times and Mike Madrid, a GOP political strategist. And Doug is calling from Concord. Doug, go ahead. Yeah, I just had uh, a thought that uh, possibly he did this on purpose to, uh, you know, cause a a, a fight and create, you know, a better image for himself with his with his base. All right. Uh, Mike Madrid, what do you think about that argument? I've always found when we uh, think that Donald Trump is being um, smart or wise and his decisions were usually wrong. <laughs> <laughs> There's just not too much. I, I wouldn't put too much into that type of thinking. He's just, I think, makes these mistakes. I think it's just part of his personality and kind of runs with it. And I think his base loves him for that. Yeah. Well, the now increasingly crowded GOP primary field is, I think it would be fair to say, often struggling how to respond to this. I want to play a couple of different reactions. Um, first, from former Vice President Mike Pence, who it's worth noting, you know, was uh, whose life was at risk on January 6th as he refused to overturn the election. Uh, we have a clip of him talking at a CNN town hall on Wednesday, right before the indictment came out. And then right after that, we're going to play a former South Carolina governor and current GOP candidate Nikki Haley on Fox News. Let's go to Pence first and then Haley. Indicting a former president of the United States sends a terrible message to the world. I hope the DOJ thinks better of it. If this indictment is true, if what it says is actually 
the case. President Trump was incredibly reckless with our national security. More than that, I'm a military spouse. My husband's about to deploy this weekend. This puts all of our military men and women in danger. If you are going to talk about what our military is capable of or how we would go about invading or doing something with one of our enemies. And if that's the case, it's, in, it's reckless, it's frustrating, and um, it causes problems. I mean, Mike Madrid, that was probably one of the strongest statements we've heard by anyone other than Chris Christie, and it's a Hutchinson. Hutchinson. Um, what do you make of that? Do you think that shows some daylight? Yeah, sure. Like in the way that daylight can be seen under, you know, drawn blinds. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, 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 some people say, well, this is progress that Republicans are finally making. I think the bar is so low on this stuff. And the truth of the matter is, a lot of these criticisms are are eking out at a time when the base is consolidating. So there's less and less oxygen in the Republican primary for an anti-Trump candidate. At the same time, the field is uh, getting bigger. And, um, you know, I, I, I just, I, the strategy is just bewildering to me. It's like if you're going to get into a race to run against somebody, you should get into a race to run against somebody. Most of these people are just sort of towing the same party line um, and, and waiting to see when when the cookie will finally crumble. And, and that's just been a fool's errand for the past eight years. I don't know why they think that it will be any different uh, in this election cycle. I don't think that it will be. And all the evidence is suggesting that not only will it not be, but it's getting actually better for Donald Trump politically in the Republican primary. Yeah, I mean, Sarah Weyer, um, Andy writes, I heard that the House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan saying that Trump had the right to declassify these documents as president. It seems like a strange defense if procedures were followed. What, what are they and how do we know if they were followed or not? Um, I guess more focusing on just uh, congressional Republicans, very full-throated defense of the president. You're in D.C. Like off the record, are, are are folks concerned on the Republican side or do you feel like this is just kind of the reaction that they've kind of been trained to uphold after the last seven years or whatever? Yeah, the party line's still pretty strong. Um, all the loudest voices are still the loudest voices in the room right now. I mean, I, uh, you know, up on Capitol Hill, Marjorie Taylor Greene is talking about having an appropriations writer to defund the special counsel. Um, you know, Matt Gates is holding what he's calling a field hearing today to discuss the indictment and people uh, you know, who have been arrested because of the January 6th insurrection. So the, the, the party line still being followed in large part, but you are starting to see little breaks, but they're really kind of like quiet sidesteps. We're not talking about full step backs. Um, you know, Representative Don Bacon um, said that, you know, he, he was very shocked and appalled by the um, the records now that he has more details. But again, we're not seeing, you know, a mad dash away from Trump. We're just kind of seeing a few people take tentative steps backwards. Yeah, I mean, I know Representative uh, Byron Donald said today, what, there's 33 bathrooms in Mar-a-Lago? <laughs> like, as if, I don't know, they're, we're getting creative with some of these. I, I wonder, though, um, from a political perspective, Mike Madrid, like, this railing that we're seeing on the right against the federal government, the DOJ, the FBI, you know, in a party that's traditionally been pretty law and order, like, does that impact their ability to kind of, um, I don't know, make the public safety law and order argument in an election? Yeah, look, all of this activity is is damaging um, their support amongst independent voters. 
I would just, it's just, they're just hemorrhaging voters. And it's not just Trump, incidentally. If you look at the generic ballot with the questions on all of the other candidates, including Ron DeSantis, their numbers are also tanking with independents. Uh, people are fleeing the Republican Party. People who have traditionally looked at both parties, uh, either positively or negatively, to kind of ascertain where they want to go and vote, are, are are fleeing the Republican Party. This is not helpful for, for the GOP. It's not helpful for anybody down ticket. It's not helpful for Ron DeSantis, and it's certainly not helpful for Donald Trump in a general election. Um, but this phenomenon is, you know, completely enrapturing the Republican base. And that's the real dilemma that Republicans find themselves in with Donald Trump is they can't win without him and they can't win with him. Yeah. They literally cannot. They, they're, they're stuck with him. He's got, he's got this death grip on them, and, and that's what we're watching play out. Now, do most establishment Republicans know this? Of course they know this. But they, they, they also can read the tea leaves that are pretty obvious now, too, is if you cross Trump, your political career is over, too. And that's the calculation that not only are they making now, that they've been making uh, for many years. And they have so allowed you know, the barbarians to come up to the gate that, that they're, they're crashing through and there's literally nothing that they can do anymore. And, and yeah. you know, it's, it's the, 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 they're dealing with the repercussions of that. You are listening to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos in today for Mina Kim. We are talking about this federal indictment of former President Donald Trump. He's going to be in court very soon. Um, and Sarah Weyer uh, of the L.A. Times, I wonder how you're seeing the other side, the Democrats, respond to this. What has been pre- President Biden's response? Um, and, and what do you see ahead as he you know, has to wear two hats as both president and candidate uh, coming up to 2024? I'm going to throw in a bit of breaking news. Uh, yes, please. We love that. <laughs> uh, that Trump has arrived at the courthouse to surrender to federal uh, authorities. He just went in through the garage entrance. All right. um, and there will not be, we should say, videos or photos in the courtroom today. I, I don't even think anyone's allowed to bring in their phone. So we'll no, be waiting. no video, no footage. And there will not be a mugshot. We have that confirmed with the U.S. Marshal's office. They're just going to take his fingerprints and social security number, et cetera. Um, so, you know, Democrats are largely keeping their mouths shut. I, I saw a great description in another publication today of it's kind of like how you how you act when an ex is going through a hard time. You just keep your mouth shut and post, you know, bikini photos of yourself on social media. Um, so, so Biden is doing his best not to talk about this. He's going to have to eventually, but it's, it's new. And I mean, even the attorney general hasn't talked about this publicly at this point. Uh, they want to send every sign that this is in the hands of the special counsel, that he had the authority to make this decision based on the evidence he collected. Um, but yeah, eventually they're going to have to talk about it. Yeah. And, um, I know we've been talking about the politics, but I'm curious, Sarah, like, what do we know about where the documents are now? Uh, they're in federal custody, correct? Yeah, they're still in the they're in the uh, custody of the, the special counsel's office and the FBI. Um, some have probably been, you know, they're within what's called a skiff. It's a um, a location that it can't be processed through you know x-ray and radar um they're usually pretty far underground um you know 
that's where a lot of them are probably being kept. But no, they haven't been turned over to the National Archives or anything like that yet. Yeah. Mike Madrid, uh, going back a question to you, what do you how do you grade President Biden's response to this so far? And, and what if you were advising him, what would you say he should be doing in the weeks and months ahead? I think the appropriate thing to do is kind of wait until we know a little bit more beyond this arraignment. And I think he's done a good job of sort of keeping quiet and focusing on other, you know, um, issues pertinent to running the state. Um, there's an old political adage that you never interfere with the enemy while he's in the process of destroying himself. But I, I really believe that this is a different situation. And I would start to weigh in on this if I were President Biden. Um, not only to further consolidate Donald Trump's support behind him to have Trump secure the nomination, but also to move those independents away from the Republican Party. Biden did something really extraordinary in the midterms, and that is he had two press conferences, one uh, at Independence Hall in Philadelphia, where he started to use the term MAGA Republicans, which is really unorthodox for a sitting president to use language that partisan and warned the country about the dangers to democracy that this extreme element in the Republican Party presented. He faced a lot of criticism for that, but clearly their polling was showing that this type of framing was moving independence away from the, the Republicans, and it worked. It worked masterfully, and my uh, strong suspicion is they will continue to use that because the more... Uh, that comes out of this, the more that we learn about what Donald Trump did, uh, the more the more uh, charges he faces. Remember, there's a Georgia uh, problem he's got mm -hmm. too coming in, in probably in August. Um, this is this is you know enraging the Republican base and it's turning them white hot, uh, both loyal and angry, but it is really pushing away everybody else, and that's not enough uh, for Republicans to win elections. Yeah. One final comment from a listener who tweets, if Trump had simply returned all the classified documents, he probably would have never been charged with any crimes. That may well be true. Sarah Weyer, uh, less than a minute left. What are you watching for, not just today at this arraignment, but in, in the, you know, the weeks ahead when it comes to this case and kind of how it's all playing out? I am watching for any restrictions or orders on what Trump and his team can say publicly. Um, whether the lawyers speak to the press afterwards. And I'm also looking for the date of the next appearance or status conference. Uh, that's going to be a sign of how fast moving this case might be. And also if uh, Judge Cannon is going to be um, be presiding over the case or might recuse herself. All right. That's Sarah D. Wire. She covers the Justice Department, National Security and Government Accountability for the Los Angeles Times. Sarah, always appreciate having you with us. Thanks for having me. Mike Madrid has also been here, co-founder of the Lincoln Project and a Republican political strategist. Mike, always a pleasure. Marissa, always great to be with you. Thank you. Earlier, we were joined by Shan Wu. He is a former federal prosecutor and defense attorney. A lot of thanks to him as well. You've been listening to Forum. Thanks to my guest and all of our listeners and my great production team here at KQED. I'm Marisa Lagos in Fermina Kim. You've been listening to Forum. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.